0: You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Philippians 1, I've titled this one, Paul's Guide to Max Gains. I know some of y'all are into gains. Well, Paul's going to talk about gains. He's going to brag a little bit about the gains he's been seeing lately. And in this letter to the Philippians, this is a letter written almost 2,000 years ago from a guy named Paul to his very dear friends in this ancient city of Philippi, hence the name Philippians. And you know, what stands out, as we saw last week, is that even though Paul is, has been in prison for years, is suffering, has been through so much pain, he's so happy. And we saw last week, what he was happy about was God's work in the lives of these Philippian believers. You know, he, and that work we saw had a past tense element, had a present tense element, and had a future tense element. Well, this week, Paul's going to talk about what he's happy about, and what he's, what he's going to talk about are the gains that he's seeing and has seen. And it'll have a similar format. He'll it'll, it'll talk some about past gains, he'll talk some about present gains that he's seeing, and then he's going to talk about the future gains, and the gains he foresees in the future. Let's just start here. He starts in chapter 1, verse 12, talking about his past gains. And what he says is, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And so this, he's talking about the gospel. What is the word gospel? The gospel just means good news, and it may even say that in some of your Bibles. And uh, when the Bible talks about the good news, you know, the Bible the is primarily a book about good news. A lot of people don't know that, but it's the good news that Jesus came to bring. And the good news is this, Jesus died for sins. He died for you so that you can receive forgiveness, so that you can receive eternal life, so that you can know where you're going to go when you die. And that is great news. And it's not about how you have to earn it or all the good works you have to do and do you measure up compared to other people. No, Jesus measured up. He lived the perfect life. He died for you. And now you can receive forgiveness. You can know where you're going to go when you die. And what a relief that is. And so Paul says, the gospel, the good news, this message, Paul has embraced this message, and ever since he he encountered it, ever since he received Christ, he's gone around telling people about Jesus. And he says, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And so he talks about the progress of the good news. And this word progress, this is an interesting term. You know, this term is used sometimes in military literature to describe an army moving forward. And so the good news, it's like an army that's chunking forward in spite of the enemy opposition, bursting through enemy lines. It's also used in sailing context. Actually, that's the main way this was used. This is a sailing term. It means to make headway in spite of the wind, in spite of the waves. It's like the wind is coming directly at my sailboat and somehow I'm able to move forward. And you know, it seems physically impossible But a good sailor knows how to maneuver right into the wind. And, you know, Paul, he says, that's kind of what my circumstances have been like. It's like I'm sailing straight into the wind, getting pounded by waves, and yet somehow the gospel, the good news, is making progress. And, you know, when he says my circumstances, you know, there's a lot packed into that little two-word phrase. You know, if you read the last part of the book of Acts, Conrad went into a little bit of this when he introduced the book for us a couple of weeks ago but you know Paul's circumstances they've led to progress and how have they done that well we read in Acts chapter 22 Paul is nearly killed by a mob in the temple court that sounds pretty bad right that sounds like how can God make anything good of this and then we see the soldiers quiet the crowd and they say why don't you explain yourself and he gets to tell the whole crowd about Jesus Didn't see that one coming. Couldn't have arranged for the whole temple court and all the soldiers to just stand there listening with rapt attention to Paul telling them about Jesus and the impact Jesus has had in his life. Then he's thrown in jail for four years. That seems pretty bad. How can any good come of that? Well, he got to preach to kings and rulers. We see one by one the most powerful men and women, the ruling class of that area. Felix, Festus, Agrippa, Drusilla, Bernice, all of them, they come to Paul, and they say, so who's this Jesus you're talking about? You know, you could not have arranged to get an audience with these rulers. You would have had to know somebody who knew somebody, and even then, you could not have had their attention. And yet God used Paul's chains, his prison, to to give him an audience with the most powerful and to tell them about Jesus And then he gets loaded onto a prison ship that's nearly lost at sea. That sounds awful. How in the world can that be a progress for the good news? How could God make anything good out of that? Well, what we see is he got to tell the whole ship about Jesus. Because of this storm, because Paul proved to be the only one credible on board, we see by the end of the storm, they're all looking to him. You know, You couldn't have formed a prison Bible study and gotten onto that ship and had 10 people gather to listen to you. But a couple hundred of them stood and listened to Paul tell them about Jesus. And then they're shipwrecked on an island, and he's bit by a snake to boot. You know, that sounds terrible. How can God make anything good out of that? Well, as as a result, he got to tell the whole island about Jesus. Jesus. It was being bit by the snake and then not dying that the the islanders were like, who is this guy? What do you have to tell us? And so Paul tells them about Christ. Again, you could have raised money and sent a team of missionaries to the island of Malta and maybe eventually gotten someone to listen to you. But God's like, no, I'm just gonna run your boat into their island. (laughs) And then I'm gonna have a snake bite you. And that, that is our plan for reaching Malta. And so, you know, we come up with our plans, you know, the prison boat Bible study, the multi-missionary fund, the let's try to tell Felix and Herod, King Herod about Jesus. Let's try to get a hearing in the temple, in the temple courtyard. And God's like, nah, I'll just put you in jail and move you around and you'll get to tell all these people. And so Paul's like, I can't believe how my circumstances have turned out for the progress of the gospel. We're sailing right into the wind and somehow we're making, we're making headway. He goes on to tell about one more past, kind of a present gain, in verse 13. He says, you know what? My chains in the cause of Christ, Je- Christ have become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Yeah, the Praetorian, this, this super elite segment within the Roman army. They got more pay. They got better duty. They also were eligible for easy jobs like this one that Paul is talking about. You know, what Paul did is when he went to Rome, he got thrown in jail, waiting his trial before Caesar. But it was house arrest, so it was a little nicer than the regular prison. But he was chained to an elite Roman guard in prison 24-7. How in the world can anything good come of that? This guy should be out there telling people about Jesus. But at a certain point, Paul followed the chain from his wrist to the other guy's wrist, and he's like, I got me a captive audience here. No pun intended. He's chained to me. And therefore, he starts telling the guy about Jesus. Six hours later, another guy comes in. They, they switch shackles, and he's got somebody new to talk to about Jesus. He starts leading these elite soldiers to Christ. These guys would do six-week terms of duty, and then they would get rotated back out to other parts of the Roman Empire. The gospel was being spread throughout the Roman military, and Paul says, throughout the guard and to everyone else. Rome is suddenly buzzing with the news about Jesus, all because Paul is just chained to the right guys who knew the right people. And so Paul can say, I'm seeing some serious gains over here. We are seeing the gospel, the good news, make progress, sailing straight into the wind. And so we see the gospel making progress in spite of obstacles, and we're going to see the gospel make gains in spite of barriers. I've seen this so many times in my lives. I I, I bet you we um, we we could just talk to different people in this room, and you can say how a year ago when COVID shut everything down, how awful that was, and yet I've seen God move. I've seen God work in ways that he couldn't have if COVID had not happened. I've seen this in my life as well. A number of years ago, there was a guy coming out to our home church, you know, he was kind of in, he was kind of out. You could tell he really wanted to follow God. He had recently become a Christian, had never really walked with God, and he ended up getting his third DUI, which um, is pretty bad. You know, you've, you've got to sit under house arrest for some time, for a period of, I think, 30 days is what he got sentenced. And he was just telling us, man, I, I'd like to keep coming out, but I've, I'm under house arrest, and so I'm not going to be able to come out for the next month. And then we started talking, and he was like... Although, if I lived in the ministry house, then house arrest would be ministry house arrest. (laughs) And we're like, well, it's worth a shot. So the day before his house arrest started, he moved into the ministry house, (laughs) and he was just trapped there with walking Christian brothers for the next 30 days. He could only leave to go to work. It ended up being the thing that jump-started his spiritual life, and now, many, many years later, He's still following God. He's married to a Christian woman. He's got kids. He's raising his family to follow Christ. You know, a third DUI doesn't sound like a real good circumstance, but God used it. God used it. Or a number of years ago, a bunch of us raised some money to go down and do this missions trip down in Trinidad. We were going to run this camp for kids. We had all these teachings, all these games. We had food ready to feed these kids. We show up the first day like five kids show up. So we're all like moping around. We're like, man, we've, we came all this way. We did all this prep. This sucks. And then we started thinking, well, maybe we should just go out and see if anybody else wants to come to camp. And so we got some of the camp staff and we just started walking around the area where the camp was, which was a super poor area. We started inviting people to come. As we walked, this, this mob grew around us of children. <laughs> Next day, instead of five, there were 25 kids at camp. The next day, they went home and told all their friends, 45 kids show up for camp the next day, 60 the next day, 80 the next day. By the end of the week, there's over 100 kids there hearing about the the death and resurrection of Jesus. These kids were so awesome. Many kids met Christ that week, and they heard the good news. And out of those 100 kids that were there that last day, 95 of them were not invited before the camp started. But God used that circumstance to reach the people that he wanted to reach. And so we see the gospel. We see the good news. As long as you got the good news, it seems to have a life of its own, overcoming obstacles. And that's what Paul's so excited about. That's what he's so happy about. The progress, the gains for the good news. He goes on to talk about some of the present gains that he's seeing. But not before he talks about his chains. He says, my chains. And you know... um, I thought this was interesting here. He says, My chains in the cause of Christ. And, you know, some of us, we might feel like we're in a place in our life where we've got a chain. We're chained. And um, we feel like there's this circumstance we're trying to get away from, we're trying to get out of. It's harder than we thought it would be. You know, it could be a job that we just can't get out of, we can't get another job. It could be something about our schooling, it could be a relationship. It could be a living situation. It could be a disability or a sickness or pain of some kind. And we're trying, trying, trying to get away from it. And we're, and we're unhappy and it's not turning out the way we expected. And I think Paul might have felt like that at times about his chains. But here's the thing. Sometimes God allows the chains because he wants the gospel to go in a different direction. And it, is it possible that's why God has allowed these chains into your life? Why you're stuck where you are? And so instead of pulling at those chains and feeling sorry for yourself, why not ask God how you can be faithful to Him right where He has you? Why not learn how to find happiness right there with Him in the midst of those difficult circumstances? Well, Paul's present gains are just as impressive as his past ones. Paul says, you know, here's one thing I'm seeing. Most of the brethren here are trusting in the Lord because of my chains. And they have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So I'm trapped. I'm limited in who I can talk to. But a lot of the other believers here in Rome, before I got here, they were pretty timid. They were pretty fearful. But now somehow my chains are giving them more courage and less fear. Wouldn't you think it would be the opposite? They're like, geez, I was scared before. And then now you, you're chained to a Roman guard for speaking up. I... I do definitely not want to speak up now at this point, but no, something about seeing Paul there in chains was opening their mouths in boldness, without fear. What, what would do that? You know, part of it might be they saw the importance of the message. They saw that Paul's like, I don't care if I suffer for this. I've got the cure for death here. I've got the, the secret to happiness, the meaning of life. I can't shut up about that. And they were like, yeah, good point. And so they began to speak up. It could be they saw the power of the message. You know, imagine sitting there with Paul in his prison cell, watching him talk to this guard, watching this big, tough guard in all of his armor begin to soften, watching him start to ask questions about Jesus and open up about his life, watching him as tears begin to run down his face as he bows his head and prays to receive Christ. You'd be like, whoa, I want to be part of this. I want to get in on that. And so because the message is so powerful, because it's so important, it just, it evokes this response. They see Paul's happy in spite of his change. They're like, well, even if I suffer for it, we see, I see Paul, he's happy. I can be too. It's okay. It's not going to be the end of the world. It might be the beginning of a new phase of my spiritual growth. And so we see the gospel, we see the good news overcoming bad circumstances. We see it overcoming f- fearful messengers And we see it overcoming another obstacle. Paul says, you know, there's a lot of people speaking up, and some, they're not doing it from very good motives. They're preaching Christ from envy and strife. They're envious of me. They're jealous of me. You know, yeah, some from goodwill. Some are doing it from genuine good motives, and they do it out of love. They know that I'm appointed. I'm set here by God for the defense of the gospel. But... The other ones, they're proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition. They're trying to get something for themselves rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my chains. Like they're out there getting all this fame, and I'm in here not. And Paul says, so what? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Or as I said last week, since rejoice isn't a great word, because it's been drained of its meaning by Christians, I delight, I celebrate, I'm so glad that these people that hate me are telling people about Jesus. Now, who are these guys? Who is this group of preachers, speakers of the good news? Some people are like, are these like false teachers, like the ones we've read about in Galatians? Are these preaching a different gospel? No, they're not. You know, for one... um, he calls them brethren in verse 14. They seem to be part of the group of brothers in Christ. And they're proclaiming Christ. They're actually speaking the message about Christ rightly. He also doesn't denounce them. Remember in Galatians how vociferously he denounced those false teachers? Even later in Philippians, there's a different group of false teachers that he calls dogs, evil workers. He doesn't say that about these guys. He's like, I'm just really happy they're telling people about Jesus. No, instead he rejoices that Christ is proclaimed. And so I think what's happening here is these are Christians that have bad motives. They're telling people about Jesus, but they're telling him for the wrong reasons. And Paul's like, you know what? The gospel is bigger than that. The gospel is so big it can overcome our bad motives for telling people about it, as long as we're actually speaking it truly. And so, you know, there's some application for us here. For one, I think it's nice to know that a lot of messengers have problems. God works through messed up people to speak his good news to the world. And so some of you here, you know, some of you here tonight, you're non-Christians, and you have been the victim of Christians like this, okay? People who are doing it wrong, they're not doing it the right way, they're not doing it for the right reasons, they're not doing it in a very loving way, they're kind of forcing it down your throat... And for some of us, that can even be a barrier to receiving Christ. Some of us are like, I don't know if I want to do that because I've got kind of PTSD from, you know, my roommate that did that to me or my worker or, you know, a family member. Maybe my parents were this way. And so I just got to tell you, Christians are messed up, okay? Christians are messed up. We've got problems, And don't let the messenger keep you from seeing the message clearly. You know, the message is not receive Christians. The message is receive Christ. That's what it is. That's the good news. And then you learn to love the Christians, okay, (laughs) once you receive Christ. He teaches you how to do that. But, um, you know, a lot of messengers have problems, and that's okay. You know, the good news is powerful enough to overcome even our bad motives, some of us are, are handcuffed just because we feel like we're going to do it wrong, and am I doing it for the wrong reasons? Don't worry about that so much. Just get moving and allow God to steer you. Allow God to deal with your motives as you go along. Another warning here, beware of becoming envious of how God is using others. You know, these, these people he's talking about, they were envious. They knew Paul was put there by God. They knew Paul was being used by God. And uh, sometimes you can look over at other believers and feel envious about the way God's using them, the leadership roles, the speaking roles, whatever. It's a real danger. You need to let God deal with that envy that you've got. And here's another warning. I hope you're ready. If you're going to speak up for God, I hope you're ready for some genuine Christians to just dislike you. Even Paul was disliked by genuine Christians. And uh, you can't let that ruin your joy. You can't let that take away your happiness. You've got to just be like Paul, where he's like, well, I'm just happy they're telling people about Jesus. And, um, you know, they can do their thing, and I'm going to do my thing. And praise the Lord, and I will rejoice. So those are Paul's present gains. Now he turns to talk about future gains. You know, he's staying focused, right? You've got to be focused on the right thing. He's focused on how the gospel is progressing. Even though lots of things in his life are not advancing. You know, there's really a lesson here about mindset. You know, his net worth is not growing, and he doesn't anticipate it growing. His level of personal comfort, the amount of me time that Paul has, that's not going very well. He doesn't think that's looking good in the near future. That's not a future gain for him. The amount of control Paul has over his life is decreasing by the day. And prestige in the eyes of the world, he had a whole lot more of that before he ever met Christ. But he does say later, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Now, we've got to keep our focus in the right place. If he was focused on the bottom things or putting his hope in those, he was not going to be very happy. But it's a book about his happiness. It's a book about Christian happiness. These things here, they're pretty, they're pretty flighty. They can come and go. What Paul was really focused on was the advance of the good news. And now he looks to the future and says, Yes, and I will rejoice. I rejoice, and I will rejoice in the future, or delight, or celebrate, or be glad. Because I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Remember, there was a, there's a real threat Paul could have been executed here. He was waiting trial before Nero. Could have killed him. Could have executed him. Paul here, it seems like maybe God has revealed, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna get out of jail. Your job is not done here on this earth. Although he's very close. Paul is very close to the end of his life when he writes this. This is the early 60s. He dies in the mid-60s. He's only got a couple of years left, even though he gets out of prison. But he says this is according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will, even now as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So he says, no matter what happens, I am going to exalt Christ. I'm going to magnify Christ, which makes you wonder, how can anyone magnify Christ? You know, through him all things were created, in him all things hold together. How can you make him any bigger than he already is? Well, you don't make Christ bigger, but you help people see his bigness. You know, it's kind of like a telescope magnifies the stars. I used to have this telescope, a really big, you know, four-foot-long thing that I would wheel out sometimes with my garage after home church or CT or whatever. And we'd pull that on my patio, and, you know, we'd get people out there, and we'd start looking at the stars. And we would look at the planets, and we would look at the moon, and I would be like, okay, I'm going to show you the moon, right? You've seen the moon. You need, like, a special filter so it doesn't, like, blind you, right? Um, And I'd be like, when you look at the moon, it's going to be so amazing, you're going to be tempted to shout out for joy. But you can't, because it's, like, 11 p.m., and my neighbors are asleep. And they'd be like, it's cool, it's cool, it's cool. And they would look in there, and they'd go, holy cow! And I'm like, dude, shh. That happened more times than I can count. You know, the moon's there, we can see it, but then you look at it through a telescope, and you're like, Whoa. you look at Saturn, you see the rings of Saturn, you see Jupiter, you see the four little moons moving back and forth, these little pinpoints of light. It's incredible. It doesn't make those bigger or more incredible. It just helps people see the incredible thing that's already there. That, that's what our lives should be like. People think they've seen Jesus, and then they look at him through us, and they're like, whoa, amazing. Paul says, that's what I want. That's the purpose of my life. And then he says one of the most profound and famous sentences in the entire Bible. He says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a simple statement about the meaning of life right there. I mean, what about you? How would you fill in those blanks? Can you fill in those blanks? Think about that. To live is what? To die is what for you? If you can't fill that in, what are you living for? You need to have answers to those fill-in-the-blanks. Some people are like, well, to live is making a lot of money. Well, the problem is, if you fill anything other than Christ into the first line, the second line, you lose it all. To die is to leave it all behind. You can't stuff your casket with cash. Wouldn't do any good anyway. So people are like, well, to live is trying to look good, making those gains. I got bad news for you. This is about the best you're going to (laughs) look. To die is to get wrinklier and saggier until eventually your body just stops working altogether. And if you think you look bad before you die, check yourself out about a month after you die. (laughs) That is a fundamentally, by definition, a losing proposition. That's why people they get so just unhappy and they spend all this money on plastic surgery and it doesn't work anyway. To live is to gain admiration from others, to get as many Instagram followers as I can get, to get likes. To die is to have your account deleted and everyone forget you existed. I mean, that's what's going to happen. People, you know, name anybody from 100 years ago. <laughs> any famous sports star, any famous politician. We can't. We forgot. The people that could, they all died and their kids died. No, and to die is to lose it all if that's what you're living for. To live is finding the That's what some of us are living for. To die is to leave that person forever. If you don't have Christ, it's farewell. Even if the relationship makes it, which a lot of them don't, you're leaving them forever. You'll be crushed without Christ. And, you know, none of these things are bad in and of themselves. I mean, I've found the love of my life. I have plenty of money. I'm pretty comfortable. People know who I am, you know, (laughs) like... But without Christ, sometimes we don't even want to think about the second blank, about death. And when we do, we can't fill it in, or if we do fill it in, it's, it's terribly depressing. You can fill this in for different worldviews. To an atheist, to live is biochemical processes and impulses. To die is a different biochemical process decomposition. I mean, that's what it is. Try to inject some meaning into that, but you can't ultimately. What about the religious person? To live is trying to please God or the gods and doing works. To die is hoping you've done enough to earn a good afterlife. But you really can't know. It's a fundamentally insecure position, and it's also false. God has revealed he has a different way. Yeah, to live is Christ and to die is gain live as Christ and to die as game. What does he mean to live as Christ? Well, he goes on in the next verse to explain that one. He says, if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me and I do not know which to choose. And so to live as Christ, that means I'm going to live for him, for his purposes, to show him to people, to tell him, to to tell people about him, for him to develop Christ-like character in me. And he says, "I'm, I'm going to work for you. I want to see fruit born in your life, Philippians. Yes, I live for other people. I live for the purposes of God in other people's lives, Paul said. That's to live as Christ. That's what fills your life with real purpose. But then he says, on the other hand, speaking of death, in verse 23, he says, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. And the Greek is just three superlatives, much more better better, 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 (laughs) which is bad English. It's good Greek. It's even better theology. (laughs) Paul can't find the words to describe, so he's just like better, better, better. That's what he wants. He doesn't want to live on. He wants to depart and be with Christ. He's old. He's in pain. He's seen so many friends die. He wants to go be with the Lord. But on the other hand, he says, to remain on in the flesh— is more necessary for your sake. So again, if I live on, it's for you, not for me. And convinced of this, he says, I, I, know. I know, I will remain and continue with you all. Why? For your progress and joy, I mean happiness, in the faith. Yes, remember he started with the progress of the gospel. He ends with the progress of the Philippians and the good news in their lives. And so Paul, he seems to know he's going to get out of prison here, but he's really letting them in, in a very personal way, into the longings of his heart and what he really wants. He knows heaven is so soon, and the sooner we can grasp that, the sooner we can live in light of the fact that heaven is so soon, the better off we will be, the happier we will be, and the more our lives will count for something real. What we see here is the Christian afterlife. It's personal and it's guaranteed and it's totally unique in that sense. We can know because Christ died and rose, we know we though we die, we'll rise again. And it's personal. It's not like I just disappear into the all. I become one with the force. No, it's really you. And you know that you will be you after you die. The question is where will you be you? In heaven with Christ or separate from Christ forever? It's personal. It's guaranteed. And so to live, Paul says, that would mean gains for the gospel. And he's all about the gains. We've seen that. But dying, he says, that would be a far better gain for me, and that's what I really want. He'd been there. He had visited. He was caught up into the, into the third heaven, it says, in 2 Corinthians. He'd seen it. He wants to go back He longs for heaven. And so that's why he wants to depart and be with Christ. And I love this word, depart. This is a word that is rich with meaning. John Stott says, you know, this is used a lot of different ways. One is released from shackles. It's almost like we've been chained our whole lives to this fallen world. And like, you know, the genie at the end of Aladdin, (laughs) Paul's like, I want want my shackles to be released. I want to be set free. I want to go to Jesus and be with him forever. Or uh, taking down a tent. It's also used to mean to take down the tent. And it's funny, you read uh, other places like 2 Corinthians 5, it, it again makes the analogy between dying and taking down the tent. And like we've got this tent, and this is our tent right here, right? We're living in the tent. And I tell you, I love camping, all right? I really do love camping. You know, with camping, there's just exciting adventure. You get to go places. I camp a lot each year, okay? But there comes a, mo- a point in the camping trip where you're like, "I'm ready to go home." <laughs> I've been camping long enough. I want to shower, I want to sleep in my bed, I want to open a fridge and pull out something that's not floating in ice water. <laughs> oh, and you know, even the tent, it's like, when you get a new tent, it's like, you know, the zippers are zipping real well, and the poles are straight, and the rain fly is nice and tight, and you know... But after a bunch of camping trips, that tent ain't looking so hot. You know, the zipper don't really zip. The poles are kind of crooked. <laughs> the rain fly ain't so fly anymore. <laughs> there's holes in it. You know, I, I try to get camping gear with lifetime warranties for that very reason. But you know, with this tent, there's no, there's no like, sending it back to the manufacturer for a new one. We will get a new one. We'll get a new body, a resurrection body, when Jesus comes back. But until then, our tents are going to be looking worse and worse, and we're going to be kind of cobbling these things together. There's going to come that moment where God is like, camping trip's over, we're going home. And we get to take the tent down, and we get to go home. Man, untying a boat from the dock, another sailing term that Paul uses here. You know, it's like the boat is just sitting there in the dock, and then it's set free to sail. Paul's like, ah, oh, I've been anchored long enough. I've been tied up long enough. I want to go. I want to sail. I want to sail home. If you guys have read or seen Lord of the Rings, that's how Tolkien depicts it at the end of the third book. You know, Sam goes down to the, the, the harbor, the gray havens, the, the harbor, And he's there and he realizes that the people he loves the most, Frodo, Bilbo, Gandalf, a bunch of elves, they're all going to get on this boat and sail off into the afterlife. And the tears just begin streaming down his face and he's like, I'm going to miss you guys. Can I come too? And they're like, no. You got more you got to do here. You got more. Our time is done. You've got more. I know that some of us, You know, we've been down to that harbor. You know, a lot of us here are pretty young. Haven't seen a lot of death yet. You know, they say that when you're young, you you talk about what's going to be in heaven. But the older you get, the more you talk about who will be in heaven. And some of us, we've been down to the harbor a time or two, and we've we've loaded loved ones up on the boat, and we've waved farewell as they've sailed off. But the rest of your life, is going to be more and more trips to that harbor. More and more people departing. And if they know Christ, you will see them again. But the more you love people, the more those farewells you'll have and the sadder they will be. And yet the sadness will be lined with gladness. Because as Paul says, we do not grieve as the rest who have no hope. Now we know that this is not... Goodbye forever, but this is, I'll see, you, I'll see you soon. And you can go, and you can cry out to God, why are you doing this, God? And he's, he's probably going to be silent a lot of times, though he will comfort you. But then, one day you'll make your trip down there, and you'll board the boat, and you will depart. Like Paul would do just a few years after he wrote this, to depart and be with Christ. Because he said, that is much more Better. That is better, better, better. And that's what he wants to do. you gotta, You got to be able to fill in these blanks. To you, what is life? What is life? You're living for temporary things, things that won't last, things that you'll lose at all when you die. Or do you want to live for something more than that? Christ came that people might have life and have it abundantly. He's offering you life, eternal life. And then he gives you the, the opportunity to live for him under his guidance, becoming like him, telling people about him and his good news. Just as important as the first blank is the second blank. What, for you? What is death? Will you be separated from everything and everyone you love, or will this be the event that brings you toward where you have saved up your treasure? Toward the people you love who have gone on before you and to wait for those that you love that will be there soon. That's the message of Philippians 1. We'll cover the next little section here. We'll talk about standing firm together in some difficult times. Oh, Lord, I thank you so much that um, you've rescued us from death. You give us a reason for living, God. You love us. You're so patient with us, Lord. You work You work with us and through us in spite of our bad motives and our fears and in spite of how quick we are to forget the way you've come through and how discouraged we get when the circumstances look the least bit bad. God, I pray that we would be able to say from the heart, for for, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. God, I'm thankful too that when we face down death, we know that if we have you in our hearts that death is not the end of everything, but it is simply a departure to be with you. And it's really the beginning of the rest of the story in that um, you want to rescue our loved ones, Lord. You want to rescue your loved ones, and you want to use us to do it. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.